Hello everybody, good to see you all. Wishing everybody a very happy Independence Day. Let me see who all is there. Pratik Roy, Vinayak, Cold Cherry, Aryan, Sudha, Amit, Vinayak, Dungar Singh, Chauhan, Shwet Jadav, Anurag, Shreyash, Jaydikshit, Raman Vadwa, Valab, Aditi Bakshi, Nihal, Unecha. Good evening, good evening, good evening everybody. Good evening, Mahesh Patil, Ajay, Niyogi, Nihal. Good evening, good day to everybody. Great to see you all. So today is the 37th live episode of Ask Abhijit. Today we discuss Indian history. And before I begin, I would like to tell you, if you are not aware yet, that the Taliban is in the process of entering Kabul right now. They have already entered Kabul. And the president of Afghanistan, or ex-president, Mr. Ashraf Ghani is on a plane. He has left the country. So things are moving fast. The US occupation or involvement in Afghanistan has come to an end. And the Taliban occupation has just begun. So that's what's happening right now. Yesterday we discussed this with Abhijit Ayer Mitra. I, I realized that the sound on his side was a little bit low. I apologize for that. Uh, it's a learning process. I've not done this live before with a guest, so next time it will be better. I can assure you of that. Okay, so today is Indian history like we know, and let's begin with today's questions. Let's begin with the first question. So this is by Saida, who says, can you tell us the truth about the 1946 naval mutiny? That's an interesting question. Thus far, I have been taking questions about ancient, more ancient Indian history. This is more recent Indian history, but it's a very important uh, chapter in the pre-independence history of India. It, it, it's something that actually triggered off the independence of India. It hastened India's independence. So here's what happened. Uh, the UK, along with its allies, went to war in uh, 1938, 39, 39, I think it is. Yes, the Second World War. And a significant number of the British troops were actually Indian troops. More than two and a half million Indian troops fought in the Second World War on behalf of the British. That's 25 lakhs, more than 25 lakhs. It's an enormous number. So this war went on for several years. It ended in 1945 with the defeat of the Japanese. The Germans were defeated in Europe. And after a few months later, the Japanese were defeated in 1945 with the twin atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So that brought the Second World War to an end. And this war basically crippled the United Kingdom economically. So it became very difficult for that country to hold on to its overseas possessions, including India, especially when India had been already sucked dry of all its wealth. It was There was nothing left for India to give to the UK. All of the Indian wealth had already, be, already been taken over. So the British basically began slowly disbanding the Indian, uh, Indian armed forces, right? Uh, there was a process of demobilization, which means that uh, soldiers and uh, sailors, etc., were released from service. Now, this process took a very long time. It was a slow bureaucratic pro process. Now, the, we had this big 
quite significant sizable indian navy the royal indian navy rin which had ports which was based in several ports karachi mumbai visakhapatnam madras uh, kolkata in the andamans as well even in uh, in the middle east even in singapore and places like indonesia etc so it was a very well spread out uh, naval force now what happened was that this process of demobilization was going on and all these great all these sailors who had fought for the british in various parts of the world they were basically uh, put on shore leave and they were basically uh, just kept idle and they were basically waiting they were essentially waiting to be demobilized so this process went on for a long time the treatment was very bad the salaries were the wages were very low the food was terrible there was a great deal of racism and what not and also at this time what was happening was that the indian national army uh, had captured the nation's uh, imagination because of the way in which it fought the british in the uh, in the eastern theater the battle of kohima the battle of imphal the burmese campaign uh, the indian national, uh, national army ina subhash chandra bose's army did indeed lose at the end but it captured the public's imagination the nation nation's imagination that yes indians can actually fight the british and make them bleed right now many of these indian uh, ina soldiers were captured and they were put on trial etc so there was a great deal of discontent so this is the background to the 1946 naval revolt so what happened was that in i think february 1946 uh in bombay now mumbai in mumbai this revolt was triggered off a number of uh, sailors went on strike they began to refuse uh, uh accepting or obeying orders from their european their british uh, officers etc they started saluting with the left left hand they started painting graffiti on the walls quit india and things like that and because of the ill treatment they were receiving from their british superiors there was a great deal of racism uh, they were called sons of bitches and sons of coolies and junglies and even worse things black bastards and what not these are some of the things that the food was terrible the treatment was overall terrible so these guys revolted initially it was just a small number 200 300 of them who revolted but very quickly what happened is that this spread like a it went viral the correct terminology is it went viral because these guys captured the communications infrastructure of the of the royal indian navy the wireless systems and all and within a couple of days this revolt had spread all over the indian navy royal indian navy karachi went on strike uh, visakhapatnam madras went on strike the, the even in the andamans the royal indian navy ships went uh, basically revolted they stopped obeying orders and all that and within a few days more than 70 almost 78 ships had revolted naval ships warships had revolted against the british for british uh, occupiers of india and more than 20000 uh, sailors were, were involved in this and not just the sailors it was the population the civilian population of mumbai of karachi that revolted against the british the whole entire city of mumbai the entire city of karachi went on strike there were protests there were demonstrations trains were burned property was damaged uh, europeans were heckled and pushed and all that it was becoming really dangerous for the europeans and all the indian sailors had had control of these naval ships with their powerful guns and weaponry so this became a very dangerous situation it 
within a few days if had, this had not been stopped if this had not been contained the indian army would have also revolted 25 lakh soldiers imagine what would have happened if the indian army had joined this revolt if they had come to know about this the navy the naval guys had the control of the wireless infrastructure and also they were able to communicate with various ships and very in far off locations in india but this was not connected to the army network that's why the army did not come to know about this if they had known this would have been a nationwide uprising on a scale greater than the 1857 war and the british would have been wiped out in a bloody manner in 28 to 48 hours there was, there was no way they could have survived this sort of a revolution now what happened was that these uh, these sailors they took possession of the ships and all the infrastructure they placed three flags on each ship the congress flag the muslim league flag and the communist flag these were the three main parties political parties in india so three flags the congress flag the muslim league flag and the communist flag and this spread all across india even in karachi and various places so this and it had a great deal of popular support so what the british did was that they ordered the police to quell the the rioting and all that in the cities of mumbai and karachi the police refused to cooperate the police kind of joined the people in uh, protesting against the british this went beyond non cooperation this was becoming a violent insurrection then they had to bring in the indian army the british indian army and then there was a bloody massacre in the city of mumbai more than 200 people official figures say that more than 200 civilians were killed and many thousands were injured i would say that the unofficial real figures would be many thousands must have been killed in this indiscriminate firing on unarmed civilian protesters and the same sort of thing happened in karachi also it must have happened in other places too but we are not sure i mean we don't have the records because these records were all british records so we don't really know but at least in mumbai and karachi there was indiscriminate firing on indians on armed indians and the, it caused hundreds of deaths now the congress party under the leadership of mr gandhi condemned the uprising they condemned the 1946 naval revolt against the british the muslim league also condemned the uprising of the navy of the indian uh, naval force because at that time the, these two parties were in negotiations for, with the british for a proper ceremonial handing over of power the british had made it clear that they wanted to leave india they were no longer in a position to manage india it was too difficult too expensive they they were bankrupt basically because of the war they wanted to leave india and the congress and the muslim league were trying to get negotiate and get the best deal possible the muslim league wanted a separate nation of pakistan the congress wanted a handover of, of power to themselves and this revolution if it happened it would basically destroy their dreams the partition would never have happened the people of india would have captured independence by force instead of it being handed over on a platter on british terms so this was a very dangerous moment for the congress party and the muslim league their dreams were on the verge of being shattered so mr gandhi condemned this uprising mr uh, vallabhbhai patel came to bombay and he urged the uh, the rebels to step down 
and he assured them, he gave them a, an assurance on behalf of the British that none of them would be persecuted for what they have done. Just please surrender, end this nonsense and none of you will be persecuted. So these guys saw that there was no political support apart from the communists. Strangely enough, the communists in 46 supported this revolt, but the Congress party and the Muslims, Muslim League did not support it. They condemned it. So these guys, they found that there was no support from the main two political parties. And after they were given assurances by Mr. Patel, Mr. Sardar Vallabhbhai Patel, that there would be, there would be no uh, repercussions, no persecution, then they all surrendered. So it lasted about a week or 10 days or so at most. They surrendered to the British. The moment they surrendered, they were all arrested, imprisoned, and court-martialed. So the word that they were given was immediately broken. They were told there would be no persecution, no victimization. They were persecuted. They were imprisoned for months, solitary confinement, terrible treatment. They were court-martialed, and I don't know what else happened to them. After India got its so-called independence, and Pakistan also became independent, these people who fought the British on behalf of India, they were not reinstated to their naval positions. They were not compensated for the ill-treatment and the loss of salary and all that. And we don't even know what happened to them. So this is how India and also Pakistan treats its patriots. So this is basically what happened in 1946. It was a very dangerous moment for the British, for the Congress party, and for the Muslim League, it was a spark of hope for India that we could grab independence on our own terms by kicking the British out. But the Congress Party and the Muslim League ensured that this did not happen. And uh, but this uh, incident, it it told the it uh, taught the British a very valuable lesson. They realized that they could not hang on to India. It was imperative for them to quickly leave the country as quickly as possible because otherwise there will be widespread slaughter and every British man, woman and child would be wiped out from the soil of India. That became very clear. And that's why there was this hasty process of uh, of uh, the partition of the drawing, redrawing of the boundaries of, of uh, and all that. And about... 15 months or so later, 15, 16 months later, we had the partition of India and the so-called independence of India and Pakistan. So this is the story of the 1946 naval mutiny. I would uh, highly recommend you read about this because it, it this is something that very few people have written about. This is uh, an, a chapter of history that has essentially the historians have tried to bury it because it kind of shows us the truth about what could really have happened what was possible and what the Congress and the Muslim League did for the sake of their personal benefit because they wanted power to be handed to them instead of the people reclaiming the power which was theirs. So that's what happened. Bobby asks, how many questions? <laughs> how long was Afghanistan part of India? That's question number one. How long was Tibet independent? Question number two. Prior to Islam, what was the culture like in these regions? That's question number three. And question four is, how do you distinguish a major difference between Persia and India prior to Islam? Okay, let's begin with the first question. How long was Afghanistan part of India? Afghanistan was always part of India from the beginning of the human occupation of the Indian subcontinent until about, about 500 years ago. 
right so the people of afghanistan and india are the same i am talking about the pashtuns the pashtuns are uh, essentially uh, an outgrowth of the overall northern indian and western indian population genetically culturally etc linguistically they are part of the indian uh, ethnic continuum religiously and culturally now it has changed a lot but there are still these layers below the surface of culture and all and, and all that which are still very much indian they will not agree to what i am saying they will say no we are not indians fine that's your choice that's fine but facts are facts facts don't care about anyone's feelings so afghanistan was part of india from the beginning of time beginning of human history or beginning of the history of the indian subcontinent up about until about the the turkic invasions of india when afghanistan was forcibly islamized the buddhist hindu culture was wiped out smashed destroyed cultural genocide demic genocide uh, and so on uh, kandahar essentially was the city of the rajputs do you know that the pashtuns and the rajputs are essentially the same people of course now things have changed like i said and today in afghanistan you have these different ethnicities the uzbeks the tajiks the turkmens and the hazaras and all that these are ethnicities that came in from outside as a consequence of the islamic uh, of the turkic invasions of india so around 500 years or so ago the basically the the region kind of started seeing itself as a separate uh political or rather cultural ethnocultural entity but until 500 years ago indians and afghans fought together bled together died together in resisting the turks because despite the religious difference we were still the same people so that is about afghanistan question 2 is how long was tibet independent well if you look at the history of tibet it's about i would say around 2000 years old or so when it uh, emerged as a separate ethnocultural entity so tibet was always independent the independence uh, ended in 1955 when the chinese communist party invaded and india under shri jawaharlal nehru aided the chinese communist party by sending them supplies of rice and other food stuffs so that they were able to survive and that's why the chinese were able to occupy uh, tibet before that the chinese communist uh, party's uh, rationale for invading tibet is that tibet was part of the chinese yuan dynasty's territory so that is what they said they said that the chinese yuan dynasty had conquered tibet and that's why Ch- uh, tibet should be part of china that is the logic now here's the here's the, here's the truth the yuan dynasty was a mongol dynasty its founder was shri chinggis khan so shri chinggis khan invaded and smashed china to bits right his son ogadai khan continued the process further and he and he, uh, he subjugated the entirety of china and shri ogadai khan's son Shri Kublai Khan was the first Yuan emperor of China and retrospectively he said that his grandfather Shri Chinggis Khan was the first emperor of the Yuan dynasty so this was a Mongol dynasty neither Chinggis Khan nor Ogadai Khan nor Kublai Khan nor any of their descendants were Chinese they were Mongols and therefore this was a Mongol dynasty it was not a Chinese dynasty it was a conquest dynasty of China it's capital was beijing because shri kublai khan decided that he will sit in beijing 
and lord over China. Now, here's the relationship between uh, the Yuan dynasty and Tibet. The Yuan dynasty decided to accept Tibet as its protectorate. See, the relationship between Tibet and the Mongols was that of guru and shishya. Teacher and student, guru and shishya. The Tibetans were the gurus, the Mongols were the shishyas. The Tibetans taught, they, they served as priests and teachers of the Mongols when it came to Indian culture. Vajrayana, Buddhism and all that. So the Mongols, they adopted Tibetan Buddhism, the Tibetan flavor of Buddhism as their official de facto state religion and culture. And they employed Tibetan monks, sadhus, priests, etc. as their teachers, as their gurus, as their uh, priests. And in return, they said that we will extend our protection to Tibet. We will ensure that Tibet is not uh, does not come under anyone any kind of threat. So they accepted. They took Tibet as a protectorate. They never sent their troops into Tibet. They never conquered Tibet. When Sri Chinggis Khan conquered Karakhitai, which is to the north of uh, Jammu and Kashmir, and when he conquered the Khwarazm Empire, which is to the northwest of Jammu and Kashmir, he went through Tibet on his expedition. And while coming back to China, he again passed through Tibet. He did not ever try to invade, conquer Tibet. He just passed through it. So it tells you that there was no question of a conquest of Tibet. So Tibet was always independent. It was a protectorate of the Yuan dynasty, which was a non-Chinese dynasty. But the Chinese now say it was a Chinese dynasty because its capital was Beijing. And that's why they consider Tibet to be a part of China and that justifies their invasion and occupation of Tibet. So Tibet ceased to be independent in 1955 only. Before that it was always independent. In the 8th century they actually conquered China and sacked the then capital of China which was not Beijing at the time. I forget which city it was. You can look it up. right? So the Tibetans actually conquered China in the 8th century. That They were a powerful military uh, force at the time. Then they became more civilized. They went the way of India later on. And as a result, we can see what happened. So that's the story of Tibet. Uh, prior to Islam, what was the culture like in these regions? Tibet was never Islamic. It is still not Islamic. So it's been the same. It's been a Buddhist uh, uh, culture. They also have their indigenous Bon religion, which is very similar to Hinduism and Buddhism. Right, so it's uh, today they practice a syncretic form of Hinduism, Buddhism, Bon, etc. Hinduism, Buddhism is essentially the same thing, like I have said many times. So that's their culture. Afghanistan, the culture was for thousands of years what we call Hinduism. Later, it became a different flavor of Hinduism, which is Buddhism. Uh, the uh, the Ghori dynasty was a Buddhist dynasty. Then it became uh, Turkey-sized. It came under the influence of the Turkic invasions. It got converted to Islam and then that's when the conversion of uh, Afghanistan to Islam began. Then you had the influx of various other ethnic groups into Afghanistan and today you have this mixed bag in Afghanistan where the major, the majority ethnic group is the Pashtuns who are the true natives of Afghanistan, of Gandhar and you have other ethnicities as well. The Uzbeks, the Tajiks, the Kyrgyz, the uh, Hazaras, the Turkmens and whatnot. So the culture in Afghanistan was Indian culture. Because when Xuanzang, the great Chinese monk, came to India, 
the moment he reached Bamiyan, the Bamiyan Valley, he said, thank God I have finally reached India. So it tells you Afghanistan was India. Okay, next question is, how do you distinguish a major difference between Persia and India prior to Islam? Prior to Islam, Persia and India were like cousins. Uh, I have spoken about this in previous episodes. The Persians were the descendants of the Parshwa clan of the Rigvedic Indians. There was this battle of ten kings. I know you guys have asked me many times. I'll I'll make a detailed analysis of the battle of ten kings in a separate video. So in the battle of ten kings, one of the clans, the clans that was expelled out of India was the Parshwa clan. So these guys went westwards and they settled in the region which is now named after the, them. The Parshwa people settled in a region which came to be known as Persia. So it is named after this clan, the Parshwa clan, right? So these were Rigvedic people. Uh, they they practiced Rigvedic culture and religion. Later on, uh, this uh, new religion emerged, Zoroastrianism, which emerged about three three and a half thousand years ago. Or so its its origins are still uh, shrouded in obscurity. We don't know exactly when this individual Sri Zoroaster lived. His name was Zarath Ustra, yellow camel or golden camel. Uh, that's that's what it means in Sanskrit. Zarath Ustra, yellow camel. So Zarath Ustra died in the city of Bahlik, Balkh in Afghanistan. He uh, was the first prophet of a revealed religion, Zoroastrianism. So Zoroastrianism was essentially in a kind of inversion of Hinduism. Devas became kind of evil. Asuras became kind of good. That sort of thing, a sort of inversion. It was still a polytheistic religion. It was not a monotheistic religion. This is an enormous misconception that people have that Zoroastrianism is a monotheistic religion. That is utter nonsense. It was a polytheistic religion. It was very much a post-Vedic religion. Much of the ritualism and all was still retained in Zoroastrianism. The Yagnas became Yasnas uh, and so on and so forth. You know, The Soma ritual still continued. Uh, Vritrahan became uh, Vritrahan is Indra. He became considered to be kind of evil there. The uh, the destruction of the evil uh, serpent Vritra is also reflected in Persian mythology and all that. So it is much the same even in Zoroastrianism. So and the language, the old Persian language, was kind of a dialect, an upper branch dialect of Sanskrit. The vocabulary and grammar was exactly the same. The pronunciations were slightly different. And later on, as time evolved and as, as time went by, things slightly diverged. But Indians and Persians were still very much neighbors, very much brothers or at least cousins until the Arabic invasion of Persia, in which happened like ridiculously fast. In a couple of decades, the entire religion and culture of Persia had changed. The same could not happen in India. So that's that's the difference between India and Persia prior to the advent of Islam in Persia. So I hope that answers this question. A.S. Patil asks, is it true that Babur, the Sultan of Kabul, was descended from Timur on his mother's side and Chinggis Khan on his father's side? So this is a myth. It's an entire complete fabrication. Uh, Babar was a Turk. He was born in the city of Andijan in Uzbekistan. Right? He was born there. Then uh, there were some 
problems in succession and also he decided to invade northern india he kind of succeeded etc that's a story now his story his mythological tale is that his mother was a descendant of timur the great monster and his father was descended from chinggis the great mongol now this is a claim that he made it's a claim do we have evidence of it we have zero evidence of this claim see if you want to become a great ruler it helps this uh, story behind you that i am the descendant of two great conquerors it helps it gives you more legitimacy so it is quite common for these upstart rulers to claim descent from great historical figures so babur claimed that he is he was descended from timur on one side and, and uh, from chinggis on the other side there is zero 0.0 evidence of this claim it is merely a claim a claim that is made without evidence can be dismissed without evidence so end of story gorov says obama's parents were from kenya but he was an american born and became us president outstanding man he was not called an invader akbar was indian born so how can he be an invader <laughs> okay wonderful question okay look gorov your logic makes sense my question is this how old is the united states of america it is less than 250 years old how old is india it is thousands of years old do we need to ape this new upstart nation that is already crumbling do we need to ape them or should we have our own standards of whom we define as our citizens and whom we define as outsiders there are two concepts of citizenships of citizenship one is jus soli the other is jus sanguinis jus soli is the right of citizenship if you are born on a nation's soil jus sanguinis is you get the right to be a citizen if you are descended if you sanguinis means blood if you have descent by blood in a nation babar had no indian blood so if he was born in uh, i mean akbar akbar we talking about akbar right akbar did not have indian blood he was a turk being born on indian soil doesn't make him an indian according to jus sanguinis and today in 21st century india the nation of india does not recognize jus soli citizenship by birth india does not recognize citizenship by birth so according to the indian modern definition of citizenship akbar was not a citizen of india and according to our age old traditions you can be born in this country doesn't make you a citizen you have to be invested in the culture of the country dna doesn't matter i mean dna does matter uh, to some extent this is not a dna question it's about it's about uh, being born on the soil so akbar was born in india but was he indian did was he indian by culture did he practice indian culture did he speak in indian language he did not he his actions were anti indian culture he tried to promote his foreign culture in india so how does it make him an indian he is a person born in india to foreigner parents who was trying to promote 
and spread of foreign culture in India. So that doesn't make him an Indian. That makes him an invader. Kanishka was a descendant of foreigners. The great king Kanishka. He spent his life promoting Indian culture and promoting the Indian national interest and civilizational interest. He spread Indian culture far and wide across Asia. He expanded India's military, India's cultural, civilizational and economic and military footprint by waging vigorous military campaigns far beyond India's present geographical boundaries. So that is a true Indian. Akbar did the opposite. He waged war within India to stamp out Indian culture. Despite whatever your textbooks have taught you about him, about him being a secular king and all that nonsense. So Akbar was a foreigner. He was not Indian by any means. You can keep believing it, some of you. I mean, that's your choice. My view is very clear. He was not Indian by any by any definition whatsoever. Srirang says, asks, why did the Shia Safavid uh, king help the Sunni Humayun? <laughs> That's an excellent question, right? I think in one of the previous videos I spoke about Humayun and uh, the influence. How did the how did the so-called Mughals, did these Turks, adopt Persian as their official court language? And the answer was that it's because of the influence of the Safavid uh, king of Persia, Tahmasp who sent a bunch of, uh, a large number of uh, officials and bureaucrats with Humayun on his attempt to reconquer India. And Humayun succeeded and he employed all these Persian-speaking people as his staff. And that's how this, this entire process began. So why did this Shia king, the, 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 this guy Tahmasp, why did he help the Sunni Humayun? That's an excellent question. So when the indigenous native uh, Sher Shah Suri defeated Humayun and expelled him from India, Humayun went westwards and he sought refuge in neighboring Persia, in Iran. Their king was Tahmasp. He was a Shia. Humayun, like you said, was a Sunni Turk. So why did this Shia guy help this Sunni Turk? Well, the answer is surprising. He compelled Humayun to convert to Shia Islam. So Humayun converted to Shia Islam in order to uh, acquire an alliance and, and, acquire refu and gain refuge in the court of this Iranian king. And it is only after Humayun converted to Shia Islam that Tahmasp agreed to help him on his attempt, in his attempt to reconquer this lost uh, portion of northern India. And that's the story. So later on, when Humayun reconquered that part of India, Delhi in northern India, I think he may have reconverted to Shia Islam or something, uh, to Sunni Islam, because we know that the uh, these Mughals, the so-called Mughals, were uh, Shia Muslims. So I think Humayun must have reconverted to Sunni. They were Sunni Muslims. He must have reconverted to Sunni Islam. It's kind of confusing Shia Sunni. But yes, the Mughals were Sunni Muslims. Aurangzeb was Sunni. So I think after the reconquest of Northern India, Humayun reconverted to Sunni Islam from Shia Islam. 
So that is the story. That is why Tahmasp, the king, the Shah of Iran, agreed to help Humayun because he first made Humayun convert to Shia Islam. Parayotis Yanopoulos says, it's an oversimplification also to put all on the same basket and say they were no different. Alexander brought with him Greek city architects in general, along with gymnasiums, museums, sports, economic advancements, all the fascinating, fantastic Greek culture and advancement of the times. He had he offered it to be freely shared. He is maybe the only one who built more cities than he raised. So what uh, Mr. Yanopoulos is saying is that uh, Alexander the Macedonian was actually a very good, generous, benevolent king. He conquered to enrich the conquered peoples with Greek culture and Greek architecture and uh, economics and sports and museums and advancements because these conquered people were all backward, right? They did not have any advancements that the Greeks had. So Alexander conquered in order to... um, bring these people out of their backwardness and offer all these fantastic European advancements to them. So let us take a look at uh, Alexander the Macedonian's exploits, shall we? Let me share my screen with you, my friends. Let's talk about Alexander. Right. Just a minute. Let me remove this. Here we are. So this is uh, in the beginning. This, This is a book called, the book's name is The Madness of Alexander the Great and the Myth of Military Genius. The author is Richard Gabriel. Note it down. Purchase the book if you can. Now, what does it say here? This is uh, in the uh, beginning of Alexander's uh, career as as a tyrant. So he conquered the city of Tyre in Lebanon. Lebanon is in the eastern Mediterranean. Okay. So when the Macedonians finally broke through the fortifications and entered the city, the slaughter was terrible for the Macedonians went to work with savage ferocity. Some 8,000 were killed and 30,000 men, women and children were were sold into slavery. As a final outrage, Alexander crucified all the men of military age. These were no less than 2,000. So I don't see any museums or culture or advancements being proffered to the people of Tyre here. You have 8,000 killed, 30,000 men, women and children enslaved and 2,000 men crucified. What sort of barbarian was he? Let's look further at Sri Alexander. The fact that Alexander took personal pleasure in the torture and death of Bethis. Bethis was a Persian general. Uh, It suggests the presence of a sadistic streak in his personality, which would make itself evident numerous times in the future. Later, Alexander personally witnessed the torture of Philotas, ordered the stoning of suspected conspirators, crucified thousands of captives, and occasionally murdered or tortured victims himself. What a nice person he was. These are Greek advancements, I suppose. Let's see some more. Brahmins, Indus, the Indus Valley campaign. Alexander sailed down the Indus River, attacking and slaughtering tribes as he went, to no apparent military purpose except perhaps to vent his frustrations for having to bring his Indian adventure to.
to an end. He ravaged the kingdom of Sambus, enslaved the people of the population of most of the cities, and later destroyed the cities. He then crucified the king. Oh, nice. The Brahmin priests were, uh, etc. The Brahmins urged resistance. And Alexander took it personally, executing all the priests and their families he could get his hands on. Citing Clitarchus as their source, Curtius and Diodorus say that in this campaign against the Indian tribes, Alexander killed 80,000 Indians in this region and captured many others. Right? So, uh, for whatever reasons, Alexander exterminated thousands of Brahmin priests. When he could not kill them in large numbers, he seems to have preferred hanging them individually. What a great man of culture! Let's look here. The victory over Porus had no strategic effect except to unify the Indians on the other side of the river to rally and prepare to fight Alexander together. Confronted with this opposition and the mutiny of his troops, Alexander was forced to abandon his campaign. The transit down the Indus River saw Alexander perpetrate one slaughter after another. If Alexander thought his brutality would induce would reduce resistance, he was grossly mistaken. Right? So he enjoyed, it, it must be borne in mind that Alexander did not just order these atrocities to be committed. He was an enthusiastic participant in them. He enjoyed wading into the slaughter almost as if he could not stop himself. His passion for, for glory was such that he did not have the strength of mind to consider his own safety, etc. Alexander's killing was a bloody business indeed where he could see the fear in his victim's eyes and all that. So this is the kind of individual Mr. Alexander was. Alexander uh, Alexander the Great Macedonian. So I fail to uh, understand what was this Greek culture and ad advancements that he brought to these people whether it is in Tyre, whether it is in Persia, whether it was in the western uh, fringes of India. There was no gymnasiums or museums or sports or economic advancements or Greek culture or advancement. It was barbarism, which seems to be a hallmark of the western cultures, unfortunately. So that is all Mr. Alexander brought to, where, to whatever region he invaded. And it is only fitting that he met his end in India. He fought Porus. The Greeks claim that he defeated Porus, which seems to be an absolute lie of fabrication. What actually happened was that he was defeated in India. He was grievously wounded. He limped back to Babylon where he died from his wounds. So it is a fitting end to one of the worst barbarians in human history. Aditya says, this is not related to Indian history, but I am curious to know uh, how did Egypt, North Africa and Middle East get so rich despite being a barren land and nobody needed oil in those days? Well, this is a, this is a belief lots and lots of people have that Egypt, North Africa, the Middle East were extraordinarily rich in the past. The Roman Empire was the richest empire of all time and India is insignificant. Let me again share my screen. Okay. So this is 
uh, a screenshot from Angus Madison's uh, great work on uh, the economic history of the world. So Angus Madison, I think he's an American economist, had an Indian economist uh, brought this out, he would have been immediately uh, marginalized and he would not have been taken seriously, but this is an American economist. And this is the uh, gold standard when it comes to the economic history of the world. Okay, so this is the economic history of the world over the past 2000 years. If you look here, it's the year one, the year 1000, 1500, etc. This is the year 2003. So this is the GDP of the worlds of various regions across time to according to this gentleman's calculations. So let's take a look at India's GDP. Okay, so uh, India's GDP in the year 1 AD was 33,000, billion. US dollars in, in today's money, in 1990 dollars. India's GDP in the year one was 33 billion US dollars of 1990 US dollars. Let's compare that with West, West Asia. West Asia's GDP was 10, 000, uh, 10 billion, one third of that of India, right? Let's look at uh, the GDP of, where is Africa? Africa's GDP was 8 billion. So it is one fourth of India's GDP, less than one fourth. West Asia's GDP was less than half, less than a third of India's GDP, right? If you look at the year 1000, you have very similar numbers. Africa is, and even if you look at, let's say, the entirety of Europe in the year one, it is 14 billion US dollars, which is less than half of India's GDP. The entirety of Europe, Western Europe, its entire GDP taken together, which includes the Roman Empire, by the way, is less than half of India's GDP. I think this puts things in perspective that India's GDP was always enormous. India was the economic, not just superpower, it was a hyperpower in the world. And actually these calculations, they are not very accurate. There are certain oversimplifications. I believe India's GDP was even higher than what is put out here. And yet even these very conservative figures tell you very clearly that India dwarfed the rest of the world when it came to economic, uh, to its economic power, to its the size of its economy, right? Whether it's Africa, whether it's Egypt, whether it's West Asia, whether it's Northern Europe, whether it's the Roman Empire, they were all dwarfed by India's GDP. If you look at, uh, if you read Hindi history textbooks, they talk about the Roman Empire as the greatest empire the world has ever seen. Nothing has ever come close to it in size, except perhaps Egypt in the ancient world. And yet these figures show you that these were insignificant in comparison with India. So let us disabuse ourselves of these uh, myths that Egypt, North Africa, Middle East, Rome, etc. were so rich. They were rich to some extent because of their imperialistic practices. Egypt was an empire. They did conquer other kingdoms. They plundered them and that's how they became rich. They had the fertile Nile Valley which was great for agriculture. So that was also a source of income. They had mining and other things. So these were some sources of income for them. That's how they were able to build up some uh, percentage of the world's GDP. Rome was all about conquest of destroying other cultures, destroying and, and, and perpetrating genocide. And 
extracting the wealth out of whether it is Hispania, which is Spain, or the Gaulish country, which is France, etc. Whether it's from Judea, which is present-day Palestine, Israel, whether it's North Africa, they extracted and plundered, and that's how Rome became rich. And yet, its GDP is a fraction. Its GDP was a fraction of India's GDP. And India's GDP was built up without ever conquering a foreign country. So that's the difference. Okay, two questions. One is from Aman Singh. If the British would have not come, would we still be under the control of the Turks? Naman asks, had the British not come to India, we would still be slaves of the Mughals. So this is a sentiment I see all the time. So people believe that the British saved us. We, Everyone agrees. I, I know that uh, the British rule was bad for India. The British occupation was terrible for India. And yet it saved us from the Turks. This is what everybody believes. Let me once again share my screen. Let's take a look at this. This is the high tide of the Maratha Empire, July 1759. Do you see any green in this? Do you see any Mughal Empire in this? The Mughal Empire was a Turkic Empire. This was the situation in India in July 1759. This is the high tide of the Maratha Empire. They had annihilated the Mughal Empire. They had destroyed it. They, have, they, they had taken over much of India, the whole of Western India, much of Central India, the heartland of India, much of Northern India, all the way up to parts of Afghanistan. Right? This was the Maratha Empire. It is this empire that the British defeated in three... Uh, I think it was three Anglo-Maratha wars. So the British defeated the Marathas, not the Turks. The Marathas had destroyed the Turks. The Marathas had, they had created Hindavi Swarajya in India. They had recreated a Hindu empire in India. That's what the British destroyed. They did not destroy the Turkic empire. They destroyed the Hindu Maratha empire. So had it not been for the British, India would have been a Hindu Rashtra today. That's what everyone asks me. Is Hindu Rashtra possible? Well, it was possible. It actually happened. And that's what the British destroyed. They introduced what we now call secularism. All right, my friends. So that's what happened. Sujay says, uh, can you please explain how the Himalayas were formed? And what is the importance of this mountain range for the subcontinent or the entire world? So the Himalayas were formed because of tectonic activity. See, the, uh, let me, do I have a map here? I do have a map. Just a second. Let me share the map with you. Um, just a minute. Okay, here is the map. This is our planet, as you can see. This here is India. So what happens is that this planet of ours, it, uh, if you look at the cross section of the planet, uh, you have a very thin solid crust, which is the upper one or two percent of the earth. Okay. And inside you have a, a layer of magma, which is molten rock. And if you go deeper, you have the core of the earth, which is made up of molten metal. And then you have a solid metal inner core of the earth. So this magma, this layer of magma, which is below the mantle of the earth and the mantle is below the crust, this magma is 
a liquid it is liquid rock it flows inside the earth and this activity this flowing activity of the magma causes what is known as tectonic activity of the earth's crust so you have portion of the earth uh, various portions of the earth's crust that move over time very slowly but they do move and these movements cause the uh, changes in the structure of the continents of the earth so there was a time when all the continents of the earth were united in one in one supercontinent called pangaea and then they drifted uh, they drif- drifted away and this is the structure that we have today so about 60 uh, how long ago was this about 100 million years ago or so india the peninsular part of india was attached to southern southeastern africa so if you look at madagascar here you can see that the shape of madagascar kind of fits here like a jigsaw puzzle in the eastern coast of africa and if you see the shape of this peninsular part of india that also kind of fits into this into this uh, shape here in the southern part of africa so madagascar and india were attached to africa and because of tectonic activity the peninsular part of india was thrown out was expelled from africa and it shot across the indian ocean and it collided into the eurasian landmass and this collision which happened at a very slow rate and yet it was produced by immense forces from within the earth so this collision between the indian subcontinental landmass and the eurasian landmass this cataclysmic collision pushed the himalayas upwards and that's how the himalayas were born and if you go to the himalayas if you climb up the himalayas if you climb several thousand meters up you will still find fossils of fish several thousand meters above sea level because that region was once underwater it was once an ocean and it was expelled up because of the uh, collision between the between the indian landmass and the eurasian landmass between these two tectonic plates so that's how the himalayas were formed let me show you a different image just a second let me show a different image okay if you see this it makes it a little more clear you can kind of see the you can uh, this is this is a map of the ocean floor you can kind of see the under under ocean structure of the planet if if all the water is removed and you can kind of see the kind of movement which uh, which took place so it it gives you a better idea of how these uh, pieces of the jigsaw puzzle fit together once upon a time about 100 million years ago so that is that kind of illustrates the kind of tectonic activity that took place over the eons and that is how the himalayan mountain range was formed up in the north of india right okay next question uh is it true that vasco da gama was was escorted to india by a gujarati merchant so vasco da gama was a portuguese sailor who was looking for india uh in the 15th century i believe the ottomans captured turkey they captured constantinople and they cut off the land route between europe and india the europeans used to trade with india for various uh, various precious things like gold uh, actually they did not trade for gold they traded for 
they imported spices from India and various textiles and other things, which were all considered to be luxury items in Europe. And in return, they sent gold to India. And that's why India is the world's, used to be the world's gold, the, the world's gold storehouse. India was the gold rich country in the world. Even today it is to some extent. So the Europeans were, were dependent on these luxury items from India. They prized these and valued these items very much, spices, textiles, and all these finished products. So when the Ottomans, when the Turks captured Anatolia and, and Greece, parts of Greece, etc., they cut off the trade routes between Europe and India. And that's why people like Columbus, Vasco da Gama, they started looking for alternative routes to reach India. So Columbus went east, uh, he went westwards, he tried to cross the Atlantic, he stumbled into America, he thought it was India. Vasco da Gama decided to, uh, let me show the map, the map once again. Okay, where is the map? So Vasco da Gama decided to move out of Portugal, which is here, as you can see, this is Portugal. He went southwards, he went around Africa, around the Cape of Good Hope, and he was looking for India. So he came across this kingdom of Malindi. Uh, Malindi is here in uh, Kenya. And I believe that's, I think it's somewhere here that he met an Indian merchant because Indians lived, they, they, they had been living in Eastern Africa for centuries or maybe thousands of years and they used to trade there. So it was mostly Gujaratis and maybe even uh, people from Southern India, Kerala, etc., who used to live in Eastern Africa and trade. They were traders and all that. So many of them lived there for generations. So he came across some Indians there. I believe it was one of these Indians who escorted Vasco da Gama to India, to Kerala. Now, we are not sure about the, uh, about the identity of this person who escorted Vasco da Gama to to India. Maybe it was a Gujarati person. Maybe it was somebody from Kerala. We don't really know. We don't know who it was. So, uh, and the, the records, I mean, we don't have records of exactly who the person was. So there is a great deal of speculation. Some historians have speculated that the person was a Gujarati merchant. Some people think it was somebody from Kerala or Southern India. We're not sure. What we know is that he most likely met this person in Malindi, in the kingdom of, of the in the Sultanate of Malindi. And this is an image of Vasco da Gama meeting the Sultan of Malindi. And you can see how the Europeans have painted it, like Vasco da Gama is some great godlike figure, and these these other these uh, the Sultan is like a servant to him. And as you can see, there's an Indian person over here who's holding this uh umbrella 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 like thing so this is a depiction of a european depiction of vasco da gama meeting a meeting the sultan of malindi and meeting an indian person the dress of the indian person looks like he is from uh, gujarat it's a kind of saurashtrian kind of dress it does look like that and this is a european depiction of vasco da gama uh, meeting the king in uh, what place was it calicut the calicut yeah so it, it once again, the, you can see the depiction. It shows Vasco da Gama like a heroic figure and the Indians as inferior kind of people. So that's the kind of depictions, racist depictions you have, uh, you had in Europe and you still have them 
of Indians and all non-European people. So that is what we know. That is how the Europeans have depicted it. We don't really know the identity of the person who brought Vasco da Gama to India. It could quite likely have been somebody from Gujarat, but we are not 100% sure of that. Subhashi says, recent study done by historians on decoding the seals of the Indus Valley civilization, they said that the Harappan people used to speak a proto-Dravidian language, whatever that means, thereby reinforcing their Aryan migration, invasion, tourism, picnic theory. <laughs> What's my thoughts on this? Listen, uh, there have been many claims by various people to have de decoded the Harappan, the so-called Harappan script or the Indus Valley script or the Saraswati script. None of these claims has been corroborated. None of these claims has been proven. There was this individual called Iravatan Mahadevan who uh, wrote a book about this. He said he had decoded the script and he wrote a book about this with his so-called decoding, with his uh, translation of the script, which was all make-believe. He did not ever communicate by what means he came across this this uh, translation or this de decoding of the script. He simply said this symbol means this in Tamil. This symbol means this in Tamil. But how did you make this up? What's the logic behind it? What's the thought process? There has to be some logic behind a decoding of a language or a script and he failed to provide that. And therefore his, his claim is completely false. It's completely unproven. There are some people especially the Aryan invasion uh, theorists who treat Iravatan Mahadevan as a god? May the gods have mercy on his on his uh, soul because he has passed away. But his uh, his work is basically nonsense. Okay, so first of all, Iravatan Mahadevan's uh, decoding of the script is completely incorrect. And secondly, there have been many people who have claimed that it is a Dravidian script or whatever that means, like you say. But there is no proof of that. People make claims without any proof. Show me the proof. Show us the proof. It has to be proof that stands up to scrutiny. Well, nobody has ever produced any, any proof that can stand up to scrutiny. Nobody has pro uh, produced a decipherment of the script that actually stands up to scrutiny. Nobody. And therefore, as of today, we don't know what this script was. Or, um, we don't know what language it encoded. So as of today, both options are still open, whether it was a so-called Dravidian uh, language that it uh, was meant to communicate or whether it was a what they call an Indo-Aryan language, most likely Sanskrit. My belief, it is still a belief because it's, it's my hypothesis is that it was a form of Sanskrit, pre-classical Sanskrit, most likely Vedic or, or post-Vedic Sanskrit. That is my hypothesis. I also still don't have any evidence for it, but that's what I believe. Now, the, these uh, claims have never been proven. So what needs to be done is we need to invest the, well, we means the government needs to invest in deciphering the script. We need to use technology to do this. We have machine learning and algorithms and whatnot. I mean, they the, in the West, they have been doing, they have been using machine learning, artificial intelligence to uh, decode in real time Egyptian hieroglyphics. Right? So we can do the, we can try and do the same for the so-called uh, Harappan script and try and uh, see what language it fits best, whether it is Proto-Tamil or, or, or Rig Vedic Sanskrit or whatever it is. So that needs to happen. Until that happens, there is no way of saying what language this script was meant 
to communicate. Harshit asks, since the Indus Valley civilization was spread across a very large area, is there any evidence which shows that the people spoke multiple languages? That's a very nice question, very interesting questions, question. But uh, as of today, we don't have any evidence to show that the people spoke multiple languages. We see kind of a uniformity of culture. We see standardization across this entire uh, vast geographical region, the entire Sindhu region and regions be- beyond that. I mean, the Harappan sites have been found all the way up to southern Afghanistan, the entirety of Pakistan, Balochistan, Kashmir, uh, Punjab, Haryana, western Uttar Pradesh, the entirety of Gujarat, and parts of northern Maharashtra. That's an enormous geographical region. It is bigger than, uh, than Egypt and Mesopotamia put together. It's an enormous region. And you see standardization across the entire region. The same weights and measures, the same kind of... Uh, figurines and same kind of pottery and same kind of uh, geometrical and other kind of drawings you see that this was one single overarching culture and uh, you had the same standardization of weights and measures and everything so it was essentially whether it was multiple kingdoms multiple city states or one single empire we don't know for sure there is no evidence of any royal palaces or anything any government structure so it seems to be some kind of democracy may have existed but we don't have evidence for multiple languages from what we know thus far. We have excavated less than 1% of the archaeological sites. So there is a huge deal still that we don't know about this, this uh, era of our ancient history. So from what we have today, there is no evidence that people spoke multiple languages, but it's possible that they, they did. That they did. We just need to explore and excavate more. Yash uh, say, asks, Subhash Chandra Bose and Pandit Jawala Nehru were close friends or enemies? Well, uh, Subhash Chandra Bose and uh, Shri Nehru were by no means close friends. They were competitors, they were rivals. Uh, the great Mr. Nehru was, uh, you could say he was, uh, he was under the wing of uh, the great Mr. Mohandas Gandhi. The the uh, father of the nation, supposedly, right? So Mr. Nehru was in Mr. Gandhi's camp, right? And Subhash Chandra Bose was kind of a polarizing figure. He was kind of a maverick. Uh, he had he had his own brand of politics. He, has his, he had his own ideas, which were very much at odds with what Gandhi sought for India. Subhash Chandra Bose was in... He demanded complete independence from the British. Gandhi was happy with dominion status, you know, that sort of thing. Subhash Chandra Bose was very much open to a violent overthrow of the British. Gandhi was against violence by any means. Subhash Chandra Bose was a very popular figure. He, he was a huge threat for Gandhi, for Mr. Gandhi. When Mr. Gandhi came to India from South Africa, he overnight became the superstar in the Congress party. But then a new star emerged, Subhash Chandra Bose. And I think it was in 1930-something that Mr. Bose actually became the president of the Congress party. He was elected as the president. And it was Mr. Mohandas Gandhi who engineered a political coup and overthrew Subhash Chandra Bose from the Congress party, from the presidency of the Congress party. And he appointed some puppet guy as the president of the 
Congress party. So that's what Mr. Gandhi did. He engineered a political coup to overthrow Subhash Chandra Bose and Mr. Nehru. Mr. See, Mr. Nehru was never a great leader, a great politician, a great anything. Mr. Nehru, I regret to say, was a very mediocre individual. Right? They respected Shri Nehruji. So, Mr. Nehru was somebody who was suspicious, who was uh, who had this inferiority complex, especially when it came to a genuine star like Subhash Chandra Bose. So they were never friends. Never, they were never ever friends. And after um, there is this alleged letter that Mr. Nehru wrote in 1946 to the then Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Clement Attlee, uh, urging Mr. Attlee to have. Subhash Chandra Bose arrested in the Soviet Union because uh, he had come to know Mr. Nehru had come to know that Subhash Chandra Bose had crossed over into the Soviet Union's territory. So it is alleged there is this alleged letter that shows that uh, Mr. Nehru wrote to Clement Attlee calling Subhash Chandra Bose a war criminal and urging the UK's prime minister to have to take some action against Subhash Chandra Bose. Now, many people claim this letter is fake. Many people say it's true. Until the government releases all the records, we will not know for sure. But it is well known that Mr. Nehru did not like Subhash Chandra Bose. He was an enemy of Subhash Chandra Bose. After Mr. Bose's alleged death, it is also well known that after India's independence, Nehru, Shri Nehruji had spied, had spied upon Subhash Chandra Bose's family for many years. So it's clear that they were never close friends of or, or friends of any kind. They were political rivals. Mr. Nehru resented Subhash Chandra Bose's brilliance. And uh, Subhash Chandra Bose was everything. He was basically the polar opposite of Nehru. He was a genuine leader. He was a man who inspired devotion in the people. He was a man for whom people gave their lives when fighting for the Indian National Army. He was a man who put his life on the line, Subhash Chandra Bose. He was a man who put his reputation on the line for the sake of his country. He was willing to ally with the Japanese and with Hitler in order to defeat the, the British. So he put his entire reputation on the line for the sake of his country. He did not care if his reputation was turned into dust as long as he was able to free his country. Mr. Nehru was the opposite of that. And therefore, they were never close friends. They were enemies. They were rivals. Mr. Nehru, well, hate is a very strong word, but he, I would say, disliked Mr. Subhash Chandra Bose. So that is the story. Nita asks, uh, you said that Dalits or lower caste got education in ancient India, but what about Karna in the Mahabharat? He was denied education and why is there caste divide, etc.? Aditya says, if the ancient Indian education system allows students of every caste, etc. and gender to study, then why did Guru Drona not teach Karna? Yeah, this question I get a lot. They also talk about Mr. Iklavya, who was also denied education, training, etc. by the Guru Dronacharya. Okay, good question. Very good question. This needs to be addressed. So I'm going to address, this to address it today. Imagine this scene. Imagine this scene in England, in ancient England, during the, the during the Tudor era of England, during the reign of Henry VIII or any ancient king of England. Imagine this scene. You have a teacher of martial arts 
who is instructing the royal princes of England in archery and sword fighting. So this is a teacher of martial arts who is employed by the king of England to teach the princes the martial arts, archery and sword fighting. So he is doing this, he is instructing these princes and some bloody commoner, a son of a farmer or a son of a peasant turns up and says, you need to teach me too. I demand that you teach me archery and sword fighting and horse riding. How would he be treated? How would this son of a farmer be treated if he turned up, went to the teacher of the princes and said, teach me sword fighting and archery? What would happen to him? He would be thrown out immediately and he would be given a hundred lashes of the whip if he was lucky. Maybe he would be beheaded for his impertinence. Right? So is there any caste divide in this? Do you see anything wrong with what, what happens here? Is the teacher of the princes, the royal instructor, under any obligation to offer his expertise and, and instructions to anybody who turns up? No, obviously not. The same happened in the Mahabharat. Guru Dronacharya, he was the teacher of the royal princes. He was a martial arts teacher. He taught them martial arts, sword fighting, archery, horse riding and all that. His duty was to instruct the royal princes in the martial arts. His duty was not to teach any Tom, Dick or Harry who turned up and said, teach me too. Right? But Guru Dronacharya was not the only guru in the country. There were thousands of other gurus who could also teach these things. So it was nothing to do with Karna's caste or whatever it is, or Eklavya's caste. It was about them not being royals. Karna was the son of, what was it, charioteer or whatever, apparently. And Eklavya was also, he was not, there was no caste divide. There was no Dalits or Shudras or whatever that was. They were simply not royal princes. And that's where, that's why they were denied by Dronacharya. It had nothing to do with caste. You cannot go to the teacher of the princes of the, of the royalty and say, teach me too. It just doesn't work anywhere in the world. So this has nothing to do with the so-called caste divide. I hope that makes it clear. Harish asks, what benefit did Rajiv Gandhi government foresee by sending the IPK of the Indian Peacekeeping Force? into Sri Lanka and getting involved in the war with the LTTE. What did we finally achieve because of this, etc. Okay, so the IPKF, the Indian Peacekeeping Force was sent into Sri Lanka by Rajiv Gandhi with the, uh, with the uh, approval of the Sri Lankan government. I think it was in 1987. And this was at the height of the militancy, the terrorist outfit LT, sorry, LTTE was uh, in possession of Northern Sri Lanka and uh, there was a civil war going on. So uh, the Indian government under Sri Rajiv Gandhi sent an Indian peacekeeping force into Sri Lanka. Now, as we know, this chapter of history is called India's Vietnam. It was a military disaster for India. Uh, India did not achieve anything through this military operation. India was India did not defeat the LTTE. India did not end the civil war and there were many Indian soldiers who died 
in this in as a as a result of this operation so what went wrong is the question it went wrong it was a botched operation in uh, in the year uh which year was it 1990 i think we brought the soldiers back to india so it was not a good uh good thing for india right it was we did not cover ourselves in glory it was not the fault of the indian armed forces it was the fault of the political class it was the fault of the indian leadership let me explain why when you uh, sent send the army into a military operation you need to give them a very clear time bound military objective go there get in there do this job and get out in this much time that has that is the best uh, kind of order you can give to an army go to this uh, territory get this work done wipe out this uh, these insurgents terrorists whatever and get out in this much time you have this much time so the orders have to be very specific and they have to be time bound and you cannot tie the army's arms behind their back what happened was that the indian army was not given any jo- any military objective they were they were simply asked to go and sit there in sri lanka go and sit there you are not allowed to do this not allowed to do that stay out of uh, civilian areas don't use heavy weapons don't do this don't do that and there was no military objective the army was used like a police force the army never does well when it is employed like a police force the army does well when you are given a clear strategic or tactical objective a time bound objective so the army's uh, indian army the ipkfs hands were tied behind their backs they were not allowed to use heavy weapons they were not allowed to fight in civilian areas even though the ltt did that they were not given a time bound objective if they had been told you have 3 months to defeat the ltt do whatever you need to do they would have won in less than 3 3 months but they were not given any such objective they were used like a police force they had no clear objectives they had no time bound frame time frame in their hands were tied behind their backs and that is why the ipkf and the operation ended in a debacle for india it was not the fault of the indian armed forces it was entirely the fault of the indian leadership of the time they crippled and hobbled the indian army and ensured that it ended up as a disaster so that in short is the unfortunate story of the ipkf we could have finished this entire matter in 3 months if we had been if the indian army had been uh, given all liberty you know so that's what happened saurabh asks it seems you are blocking my comments abhijit kindly read the, this some article my question to you is why a genetic north indian is so different from a genetic south indian if they come from the same indian uh, subcontinent why does the rakhi gari skeleton not have the y haplotype marker r1a1 Okay, first of all, Saurabh, I am not blocking your comments. If I had blocked your comments, I would not be showing this. What happens is that the YouTube algorithm sometimes deletes comments automatically, autonomously, based on certain words that you may or may not use, or certain other keywords that only it understands. I don't know what goes on in the mind of the algorithm. I don't know. Many people have complained, even during the book giveaway, that their comments were getting deleted. Unfortunately, there's nothing I can do about it. Okay, so I am not blocking your comments. That's part one. 
now your i don't know what that uh, article is about but i am uh, well versed with this uh, particular question so your question is that why is a genetic north indian so different from a genetic south indian what absolute nonsense i can show you result after result in the most prestigious scientific journals in the world nature for example google it i will not spoon feed you you need to do a little bit of homework google it google india's genetics in uh, and and uh, search in the journal nature you will see study after study which demonstrates that there is no difference genetic difference between people of northern india and people of southern india even the people of afghanistan even the people of bangladesh even the people of sri lanka even the people of the maldives these days these people in the west who are trying to keep the aryan tourism theory alive they have come up with a new classification ancestral north indians and ancestral south indians that is a fake made up thing if you look at the surface there is no real difference right so the genetics are much the same there is a great deal of vari- variance and variety and diversity in india's population genetically india has the highest amount of genetic diversity outside of africa and yet india's population is genetically very uniform so within this uniformity you have an enormous amount of diversity so it looks like there's a great deal of diversity and yet it is one single ethnic continuum one single genetic continuum so you need to do a little bit of your own research i will not show everything here because if i try and dig up all the all the references i'll spend another 2 hours doing that so that's point number 1 indians are the same north indians south indians genetically much the same muttaya murlidharan imran khan genetically much the same whether you realize it or not that's point number 1 question number 2 you asked is why does does the rakigari skeleton not have the y haplotype marker r1a1 well you see my friend yeah you are right <laughs> the rakigari skeleton does not have the y haplotype marker r1a1 it's because my friends the rakigari skeleton is a female i regret to say that females do not carry the y chromosome the females carry the xx 2x chromosomes males carry an x chromosome and a y chromosome so whenever you find a female skeleton from any time period you will never find any y <laughs> y uh, y <clears throat> genetic lineages because y chromosomal haplogroups are patrilineal haplogroups they are passed from father to son and they are absent in females the rakigari skeleton is that of a female they were able to extract dna only from one skeleton which was the skeleton of a female and therefore the male patrilineal lineage is absent in that skeleton that's your answer i hope <laughs> it makes sense vikram asks could you please uh, say give some information about the saurashtra region who are the saurashtra people see saurashtra let's uh, take a look at the map where is the map just a second okay 
here is the map so saurashtra so the, this is the uh, this is india let's zoom in zoom in zoom in zoom in now in the west of india we have gujarat gujarat looks like a face a person's face and the jaw the jaw jaw part of the face is saurashtra it's a peninsula it is called saurashtra so this is the region of saurashtra and the saurashtra people are the people of who are native to this region it's a very ancient region it's a very ancient people uh, it was the it was part of the harappan heartland you have many harappan sites in saurashtra lothal uh, dolavira and many more many more and in the it, there were many uh, there were lots of foreign influences in the region in this region for example you have the city called uh, there's this town in saurashtra where is it where is it where is it where is it where is junagadh i seem to be missing junagadh somewhere looks like my geography of this region isn't very good let's search for junagadh here it is this is junagadh so the city of junagadh was once called yavanagadh yonagadh or yavanagadh which means the city of the greeks of the yavana of the yavana people so this so there was a significant indo greek uh influence at one point in time about 2200 years ago in western india it was also present in saurashtra this town junagadh was apparently once an indo greek enclave of sorts later on you had scythian influences indo scythian influences in this region you had the um, various dynasties and kings and all that uh, saurashtra was part of the extended region of rajputana which includes which goes all the way from rajasthan up to saurashtra so it was the uh, rajput it was part of the rajput heartland and so on so this is a, a a bit about the history of saurashtra so saurashtra is part of gujarat but the people of saurashtra speak a specific kind of gujarati their pronunciation the dialect is kind of different from mainstream gujarati uh it's called kathiawadi gujarati kind of you know so that is saurashtra those are the, that, that's the people of saurashtra now there have been migrations out of saurashtra from time to time into other parts of india in tamil nadu there is uh in tamil nadu there are some some people called the saurashtra people who speak a language called the saurashtra language so these are the the descendants of people from saurashtra who migrated to southern india about it looks like about 1000 years ago maybe because of the uh, arabic and uh, turkic invasions that happened somnath was destroyed etc so many of these people migrated all the way to southern india and they still speak a language that is derived from the ancient prakrit language that was once spoken about 1000 years ago in saurashtra right and then there are the roman catholic kshatriyas of of uh, of goa etc they are called the chardo people who are also descendants of people who migrated there from saurashtra so that is a little bit about the history and the people of saurashtra it's a fascinating region very interesting history and it is once again a region that you we don't really get to learn about in our history textbooks so yeah read about it it's very interesting okay why did turkish 
invaders, Mongols, etc., always want to invade India? Is it because of its fabulous wealth or in the name of religion? Answer my question, please. Okay, first of all, the Mongols refused to invade India. The great Sri Chinggis Khan was at the doorstep of India exactly 800 years ago today. In the year 1221, he defeated his enemy Jalaluddin of Khwarazm, destroyed his army, annihilated his army, and he saw Jalaluddin cross the Indus River frantically to escape with his life. And across the river, you had India, the world's wealthiest country. And Sri Chinggis Khan turned back. He was at the doorstep of the richest country in India, in, in the world. And he, he was the greatest conqueror in human history, in known history. So India was his for the taking, and yet he turned back. So the Mongols refused to invade India. A few, a few decades later, there were some half-hearted, haphazard attempts to nibble at the northern borders of India by the, by the Mongols, but there was never a serious invasion. Okay. When it comes to the, to the Turks, yes, they did want to invade India. They were greedy little bastards. They wanted to invade India for the wealth. And uh, people like Babur, for example, uh, he, so Babur was born in, uh, in Uzbekistan, in the city of Andijan. And he had a couple of brothers, I believe, who, uh, who succeeded their father to the throne. So Babur was left with nothing. So he took a bunch of followers and he crossed over into Afghanistan and India. And he managed to win a small territory in northern India. And that's how the so-called Mughal Empire was born, right? So they, the Turks did it for the sake of plunder, for the sake of wealth, because they were greedy. And of course, they did try and impose their foreign religion in India. And we know that history very well. So the Mongols refused to invade India. The Turks invaded India. It was mostly for wealth, for plunder, for, for territory, right? So that's what happened. Okay, uh, why does the world hate Hindus and polytheists? You see, it's not hatred. It's that the world doesn't respect Hindus and polytheists. And the reason is very clear. What have we achieved in the past 1000 years? We are regarded, Hindus and polytheists are regarded as the losers because they have achieved nothing of any significance in the past 1000 years by the standards that the West has set. The standards of greatness in the Western world are conquest and plunder. The more you conquer, the more you plunder, and the more you spread your foreign culture and religion on foreign territories and foreign peoples, the greater you are, and the more you are worthy of respect. That's why barbarians like Alexander and genocidal conquerors like Julius Caesar are revered in the West. And today we all uh, basically follow Western standards. And that's why people like them are revered and they are respected. Later on, the European con conquerors, the conquistadors of Southern America, the various colonizers of Africa, the British who conquered India, etc. They are glorified, they exalted because they succeeded in their conquests. And the Hindus and the polytheists lost. And when you lose, you lose not just your territory and your freedom, you lose respect, you lose all your wealth 
and when you become poor you lose respect it is because of this that hindus and polytheists are not hated but they 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 are not respected and when hindus try to rise again and when polytheists try to rise again and bring their country back to its former glory that's when the hatred comes in because how dare you try to do that stay down stay in your lane don't go off reservation and <laughs> that sort of thing so that is the actual sentiment it is like they are contemptuous of the polytheists and the hindus they don't respect them and they want hindus and polytheists to stay down stay poor stay small don't think big don't be ambitious don't have big dreams stay down so that is the uh, overall general attitude arunodoy haldar says is it it is said that mother teresa came to india in order to serve people but often times historians also claimed that she had another motive like spreading christianity converting people to her own religion etc please throw some light on this topic okay see uh, this uh, this individual teresa she did not come to india to serve serve anybody she came to india to serve her religion and it is not i who is saying this let me share my screen and uh, give you a book reference i would urge you to read this book called the missionary position the author is christopher hitchens in this book christopher hitchens who happened to be british he he no longer he is no longer alive unfortunately he has exposed this individual teresa thoroughly he has exposed her thoroughly everything about her she did not care about anybody she did not did not care about uplifting the poor she kept the people of kolkata in poverty she had immense funding from various places she had access to hundreds of millions of i'm not sure if it's hundreds of millions of dollars but millions of dollars in funds but she never uplifted these people from poverty she kept them poor she kept them in misery and the only objective was to convert 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 and this is um, something that these missionaries have done time and time again not just in india in china as well they would keep people poor they would devastate the country through wars and all that and then they would offer people salvation in the form of conversion so we will help you if you convert let me show you something else so this is uh, from 19th century china during the opium wars so china was devastated by the opium wars okay there were many unequal treaties that were imposed on china etc and these christian missionaries would offer the poor chinese who were starving they would offer them salvation in the form of conversion to christianity in return they would give them rice so the chinese would call these chinese converts to christianity rice christians this is what the chinese called chinese converts to christianity they called them rice christians so this is the same tactic the christian missionaries like teresa have used in india they keep people in crushing poverty and then they offer a way out we will offer you a way out we will offer you food food and other privileges if you convert so this is the story of teresa and the story of every christian conversion mission anywhere in the world
Kushi asks, can or could, could ancient Indians time travel? The answer in one word is no. Devaraj Singh asks, has any of the Mughals done anything good for India? The answer in one word is no. Uh, Ashik asks, Prithviraj Rasso claimed Prithviraj was taken to Ghazna as Ghazni is a prisoner. He was blinded. The poet Chand Bardai traveled to Ghazni and tricked Muhammad of Gore into watching an archery performance by the blind Prithviraj. During this performance, Prithviraj shot the arrow in the di- direction of Muhammad's voice and killed him. After that, Prithviraj and Chand Bardai killed each other. Is this true? Does it have any historical evidence? The answer in one word is no. This is not true. Hansdeep says, my family says that Sanskrit was just a language of Brahmins. It wasn't spoken in the whole of India. How can we change the mindset of people and unleash the truth? So obviously this claim is false. Sanskrit was the language of ancient India. Whether it was Vedic Sanskrit, whether it was pre-Vedic Sanskrit, whether it was post-Vedic Sanskrit or whether it was classical Sanskrit from Panini's time. It was the language of India. It is only later that the upper branch languages came in the various Prakrits like Pali, etc. Now people believe all kinds of nonsense such as what you just said because of our education system. Our education system is full of distortions. The motto of India's education system is Asatyameva Jayate. Asatyameva Jayate. And they have been brainwashing and indoctrinating generations of Indians into believing all these lies. Now, what can we do to change the mindset of people? We cannot change the mindset of people who have decided to believe something. It's impossible to change it. After a certain age, people will refuse to accept or entertain any new information. They'll say, no, what I believe is what I believe. Everything else is false. So that is the story with most people. What we can do is we can teach the newer generations the truth. For that, we have to change our history textbooks. We have to detoxify our history textbooks. So that is something the government needs to do. I hope something is being done. I've heard there's this new education policy, which is taking some baby steps in some certain directions. There is some uh, some hope in the, in the form of new uh, forms of syllabus that have come out. So I hope something is being done about this. What needs to be done is this needs to happen on a mass scale. India's history needs to be detoxified. It needs to be expunged of all these lies. And then the newer generations will grow up knowing the actual truth about our history. That's the best we can do. We cannot change the minds of people who have been believing these lies for decades. It's impossible to do that. What we need to do is we need to make sure the newer generation, the today's children, today's two-year-olds, three-year-olds, five-year-olds, they grow up learning the truth. That's what needs to happen. And that is the job of the government of India. That's what we pay taxes for. So I hope that will be done. Dhananjoy says, considering the subcontinent shares the same ethos, but we are divided as a people, what can be the catalyst to unite us under one banner, putting aside our religious, caste, etc. based differences? What kind of governance is suited for our people? So that's what, uh, that's a very good question, of course. So India's strength, we say, is our diversity. We have one overarching culture and civilization, but within that we have so many different manifestations, diverse manifestations of that culture, which which sometimes seem to be very different from each other. 
So we have this enormous amount of cultural diversity. We say it's our strength. It is also our greatest weakness because it prevents us from unifying. When you have a monoculture like Christianity, like Islam, like the Han culture, like the Chinese Communist Party's culture, etc., then you can easily unify a nation. But with our diversity, it is very hard to unify us as a nation because all of us we speak different dialects different languages we worship the same gods in different forms and today we have the education system that is fragmenting us further so that is india's great challenge it is the one challenge india has been facing for the past 1000 years and the solution is leadership the one thing india has lacked in the past 1000 years is a leader who is strong enough to unify the nation Today, India is unified under one geographical landmass. We have one foreign constitution. We have one set of British laws. We have one parliament, etc. But we are so disunited. Our main hobby is to hate each other and criticize each other and, and, and snipe at each other. That's all we do. We are so disunited. We don't have a leader strong enough to get rid of the foreign constitution, to get rid of the fake syllabus and the fake history. and to get rid of all these anti-national forces that are that seek to fragment india and unify the nation by force with the strength of his or her will that's what india lacks so when india gets a leader like that india will rise again until that time nothing's going to happen now what kind of governance is suited for our, for our people well i think i just gave you the answer look back at the past few thousand years of india's history there have been times when india has been disunited lots of small kingdoms there have been times when india has been unified under a great emperor so look back at the times when india has been unified india india has been a great power the mauryan empire the empire of shri ram the the bharat empire right uh, the the kushan empire the gupta empire and so on what are the unifying what are the common characteristics you had a all powerful centralized government structure under one unifying leader and of course you had localized democratic forces so that's the kind of thing india needs india needs a strong powerful central leadership india has too much uh, what do you call it uh, what do they call it federalism federalism is the word that's used india's strength is its federal structure it is india's greatest weakness there is too much democracy in india like the chinese say this fake democracy which actually disempowers the people and disempowers the country so india needs a powerful strong central leadership structure and india needs to have local democracy you can elect your local town or council leadership or your district leadership but the central government has to be all powerful only then can a subcontinent subcontinent sized civilization be strong and united so that's the kind of governance structure india needs that's the kind of governance structure we do not have as, as of today and that my friends is the answer okay let me take a look at the live chat do you have any questions that i can answer quickly no 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 i i do not want to become the pm no <laughs> <laughs> no thank you very much <laughs> okay any questions any questions any questions something i can answer quickly 
okay, what's happening in Kabul? Uh, what's happening in Afghanistan? Yeah, the Taliban are taking over. I think they have already entered Kabul. Um, the president, the ex-president now, Mr. Ashraf Ghani has left Afghanistan. He's on a plane as we speak. I'm not sure if he has landed somewhere, but he's out of Afghanistan. So, so yeah, Afghanistan is again, once more, plunged into a dark age, a Taliban age. So Pakistan has won for now. The Americans have quit Afghanistan. They have decided to they have decided to leave Afghanistan to Pakistan. They have handed it over to Pakistan. So like Abhijit Ayurveda was saying yesterday, we need to sit back for some time, lick our wounds, and bide our time. Yes, what else do we have? Yes, good question by uh, by Spoder. What about the Maratha Empire? Was it not strong enough? It was strong enough to reconquer much of the country. And at the end, it was questions of succession. And it was the infighting that led to its demise. And that's why the British were able to defeat the Marathas over a period of time. Defeat in detail. It, it is always succession that messes things up. If they had the right succession, it if it was succession of the most powerful uh, candidate for supremacy, then the Maratha empire would have done well. You see this with, with every empire. Whenever an empire falls, it's because the succession has gone wrong and somebody weak comes to power. And that person is not able to keep all the, all the infighting down. And that's why all these, all these problems crop up. And that's how outside forces are able to defeat you. So the Maratha empire did do a great job of reconquering much of India. And in the end, it fell prey to its own weakness, which was infighting and weakness of leadership. That is always the bane of any empire, any country. Let me take one more question. Let me take one more question. Something. What do we have? Okay, how did Egypt lose its culture over time and become Islamic? I think it began with the uh, conquest of Egypt by the Romans, by Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, etc. That's how they lost their original culture. That's how became they became Romanized, Hellenized to some extent. And uh, eventually, after the uh, after the emergence of Islam in in Arabia and the outward expansion of all these uh, various caliphate forces, it was a matter of time before it fell. So, in short, that's how it became Islamized, and there was a new caliphate eventually, which turned up, which emerged for some time in Egypt itself before the Ottoman Empire took over the reins of the caliphate. So, that's in very brief about Egypt. Did the Sikhs rule over the Afghanistan region? Briefly, yes, some parts of Afghanistan. Under Maharaja Ranjit Singh, the Sikhs did defeat the Afghans and push them back out of Kashmir, out of India. And they did uh, rule some parts of what is now called Pashtunistan, which is on either side of the Durand, of the current Durand line, which is the de facto Pakistan-Afghanistan border. So yes, they did rule over parts of India which were inhabited by Pashtuns, they did rule over part of the Pashtun heartland, the homeland. So yes, they did rule over parts of Afghanistan. In short, that's the answer. One final question. 
<laughs> what should I do to become a real Hindu? Learn Sanskrit. Learn Sanskrit. That's it. Okay, my friends. Thank you so much. It was a great session. Wonderful questions. I really appreciate it. This brings us to the end of today's session. Thank you so much for all your questions. Thank you for your viewership. I will see you very soon in the next episode. Until then, take care. Have a good day. Have a good night. See you soon. Bye.